Today we're going to depart from our study in Ephesians just for today, just for this week. Talk about something that is important, but often understated in its level of importance. And that is the, the necessity of, of persevering. And when you read through the Old Testament, you find out that very few Old Testament kings finished well. Several of them started well in their service to God and their devotion to doing the things that He wanted them to do. But somewhere along the way, they, they kind of went sideways and things went bad. And they ended very poorly. And they just they didn't persevere. This week, there's been some things happened in, within the Christianity that... Um, a well-known Christian author, former pastor of a large church, decided he is no longer a Christian. He wrote a, I don't know, million-dollar book, very popular book at one point. Um, started well. Started from a young Christian family. Uh, became Christian famous at a young age. Pastored a church at a young age. And now he is, I think he's my age, a little bit younger, so he's not really old, but now he's gone south. Things have gone sideways with him, and he is not persevered in his faith and his commitment to Jesus. And we know in the physical realm the importance of perseverance. We know that you know, it's one thing to start something. It's something entirely different to finish it. Lots of people start marathons, but it's not those who start that get the gold. It's those who finish. Lots of people start an exercise routine, but it's those who continue on it that see the results. It's very similar in our relationship with Jesus and our devotion to Jesus. It is great that we start well. We start with fervency and passion, but we have to persevere in that. Right? And perseverance is hard. We, we underestimate the difficulty of keeping on. Uh, and it's hard because we do face continual resistance from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Everything around us convinces us and works to convince us to give up on following Jesus, not to remain faithful unto the end. But the reality of what we see in Scripture is that we really only receive the reward when we persevere unto the end. We, we can't give up. We can't turn back. We can't let up. If anything, this week has happened. It shows us the need for the church. The need for the church to rise up and to be the church. To be loving and faith-filled and share the gospel and point people to Jesus. There is a greater need for consistency and perseverance in our day than perhaps in ever before. And what I want to do today is I, I want to give us what the Bible would call warnings about the lack of perseverance. This, this message really isn't so much about how to persevere, but rather I just want to show you what the Bible says if we don't persevere. Sometimes we do need just that sort of a, a warning in our life. We're going to start in the book of Hebrews. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 32. That should be page 926 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 10 and 32, it says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great fight of affliction. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion on me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and more enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. 
For you have need of patience or endurance that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, he that shall come will come and he will not tarry. And now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them who believe in the saving of the soul. The title of the message this morning is The Danger of Looking Back. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we need you today. We need you today to take the word and use it in our lives to strengthen us, encourage us. Father, help us to do the things that you'd have us to do. Help us to take your word seriously, to take these warnings seriously, to examine our lives, to see if we are falling back in any way in our devotion and our faithfulness to you. Lord, where we are struggling, encourage us. Where we are weak, strengthen us. Where we are discouraged, encourage us. Uh, Lord, we just need you to work in our lives and do what only you can do. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. Have your way in all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews is written to a community of Hebrew Christians that are suffering. And they're suffering because of their devotion to Jesus. That's it. They have turned away from Judaism. They have started following Christ. And almost immediately, they begin to suffer. As they suffer, they begin to think, maybe it was better back then. I mean, this stuff wasn't happening when we were just Jews following Judaism. And they begin to consider turning away from Christ and going back to Judaism. Well, somehow the author of Hebrews finds out, and he writes this letter to them to encourage them to remain faithful. Now, as he encourages them to remain faithful, his primary message throughout the entire book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus' sacrifice is greater than the sacrifice of the law. Jesus is the greatest there is. So, anything that we suffer as we focus on and as we serve Jesus is worth it because in the end, we get Jesus. That, that's, that's the main thrust of his message all throughout. Now, in our text, he is reminding them of some of what they've already endured for the sake of Jesus. And as I said, it appears from the look at verse 32, but call to remembrance in former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction. It, it kind of gives the appearance that they came to Christ and they began to believe and began to serve Jesus. And almost immediately the suffering began to come down upon them. And I, I like the wording, a great fight of afflictions. Right? That's not a small thing. Right? This wasn't people were just saying mean things about them. This wasn't just that they unfriended them on Facebook. There were bad things, legitimately bad things were happening to them because of their faith and their devotion to Jesus. Now, it tells us some of what they endured that would be part of this great fight of afflictions. It says in verse 33... That they were made a, a gazing stock. Right? And the idea is that all of their suffering, it happened to them in the public eye. People saw everything that went on. Right? And so they were a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions. Right? So as they suffered, people watched. People saw. They did nothing to make it better. In fact, the fact that they were reproaching means that they mocked them. They made fun of them. They added to it in whatever way they could. Right? In whatever way they could make their suffering worse, they did. Uh, they suffered because they were companions of those 
who were faithful to Jesus. So some of it was not just because they were following Jesus, but they were friends of someone that was following Jesus, and so they suffered for that as well. He talks about that they had compassion on him and his bonds, but notice what he goes on to say in verse 34. How how deep their suffering was. And took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance, or a better and enduring reward. Right? They, they suffered to the point that people took their stuff. Now, they, we don't know how they took their stuff. We don't know if they came into their house and robbed them and the police didn't care. What passed for police in those days didn't care. We don't know if they just knocked them in the head and took stuff from them. We don't know. All we know is that they took their stuff, but notice how they took it. How the people that endured this, how they endured it. They joyfully endured the plundering of their goods. Because they knew that while they could take away their physical stuff, they had Jesus. And Jesus was better than anything they were losing because of Jesus. They knew that something better waited on them in heaven. And so they joyfully endured the plundering of the spoiling of their goods. And because they knew that once, he reminds them in verse 35, Cast not away therefore... Your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. In other words, don't turn back now. right? Don't now stop and go back. You're doing so well. You've always known that what Jesus offered and what Jesus gave is better than anything in the world. Keep on holding on to that. Don't turn away from it because there is a great reward coming. But, he says in verse 36, you have need of endurance. So that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. All of that better and more enduring reward is probably not going to come in this life. It's probably not going to come today, tomorrow, or next week, or next year. And so you have to have endurance. You have to keep on keeping on. You, You can't stop now. And give up and go back to Judaism and receive that greater reward that comes through Jesus Christ. He's telling them they must persevere to the end. We must persevere to the end. The key truth for all of what we're going to talk about today is there is no looking back and remaining faithful to Jesus. There's no looking back, there's no going back, there's no turning back and remaining faithful to Jesus. It is one Or the other. If we are going to remain faithful to Jesus, we have to keep pressing forward. If we look back or we turn back, we cease in our faithfulness to Christ. He goes on and he says in verse 37 that Jesus will return. And when he comes, all that he has promised is going to be ours. He will give us all the things that he promised to give us. And again, in that day, it will be worth it all. Now, the just shall live by faith. So the idea is, the just shall live by faith. They're going to keep going. They're going to keep pressing on. Faith will motivate us to keep running the race that God has set before us. But, if anyone draws back, if they turn back, he says, my soul shall have no pleasure. And that's the picture that that God is not pleased. God takes no pleasure in those that pull back, that turn back, that look back. Why? Why does God take no pleasure? And really, it's more than just He doesn't like it. It's almost 
and anger at it. Why? Why isn't it enough to start well? Why isn't it enough to run the race for a little while well? Why do we have to run it to the very end? Verse 39 gives us the answer. We're not of them who, who draw back unto perdition. Now, perdition, that's a big word. That's a bad word. Perdition is the same as damnation. And it is the opposite of salvation. So as much as we would like to soften this up, as much as we would like to make this, that what happens when someone pulls back, make it less than what it is, we, we can't do it if we're going to be faithful to Scripture. Right? Because we're not told that those who draw back, draw back to less rewards. We're not told that those who draw back miss out on blessings. We're not told that those who draw back miss out on some really good things. We're told that those who draw back, they draw back to perdition or they draw back to damnation. Now that's, that's serious. That's why we have to persevere to the end. Because when we draw back, we draw back to the opposite of salvation. We draw back to damnation. Now he mentions, he, he expects fully better of them. They are not going to do that. They, they are going to persevere. They are going to continue to believe. They are going to go to the end and see the saving of their soul. He expects that for them and, and really for Christians in general. Because it's important to understand that, that while a believer can draw back, a believer doesn't have to draw back. There is nothing in Scripture that would lead us to believe that we cannot be faithful unto the end. But there's nothing in Scripture that would lead us to believe that as a believer we have to at some point have a drawing back or a falling back portion of our life. We don't. Everything is geared toward our success in the Christian life. The Spirit of God, the promises of God, the Son of God, all of those are at work in our lives and they're there for us so that we can persevere to the saving of our souls, the receiving of all the good things that God has promised. But the reality is, despite all of those things in our favor, we can draw back. And if we do, we draw back to perdition. Now, scripture is filled with examples of people who, who did this. And what we're going to do this morning is look at three. Three that are three of, of many. We won't look at any of the kings because there's just too many of them. We're just going to look at three people who, who looked back, who drew back, who went back. And we're going to see the consequences of those decisions. First one is that Lot's wife looked back. Right, turn to, I hope you brought your sword drill Bible today because we're going all over the place. Turn to Luke 17 and 32. should be page 800 in the Pew Bible. Luke 17 and 32, one of the shorter verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Which seems like an odd statement. For Jesus to make. Because in all honesty, Lot's wife seems to be a fairly unimportant person in Scripture. She's 
really, if you think about it, of so little importance, we don't even know her name. We are simply told she is Lot's wife. Despite this, Jesus said that we are to remember her. Why? Well, the context of Jesus' statement is regarding His return. But He explains that the day of His return will be a day of sudden judgment. Look at verses 26 through 29. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given a marriage the day that Noah entered the ark. The flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, and notice the days of Lot. They sold, they planted, they built it. The same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The picture there is that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be sudden, surprising. It's going to, for all, all purposes, for our lives, it's going to be like an ordinary day. Right? There's not going to be like the alarm on our watch that wakes up and says, Jesus is coming today. It's going to be like we're going to get up, we're going to eat breakfast, we're going to go to the gym. We're going to do whatever we would normally do on a day. And then suddenly, Jesus comes back. Now, there's also pictures in this passage where, where Lot's wife is that there is a sudden separation right, where God separates the righteous from the wicked for judgment. Right? Look at verse 34. So I tell you in the night there shall be two in one bed, and one shall be taken, the other shall be left. Two shall be grinding together, one shall be taken, the other left. Two shall be in the field, one shall be taken, and the other left. Right. So also on this day there is just going to be a sudden separation. The righteous will be separated from the wicked. The wicked will suffer the judgment of God. So in light of the fact that Jesus will return suddenly, without warning, and bring judgment, we're to remember Lot's wife. In light of the fact that Jesus will return and bring a sudden separation between the righteous and the wicked, we're to remember Lot's wife. Okay, but why? Now the, script, the story of Lot's wife is largely told through the story of Lot. Lot's story begins in Genesis 13. 5 through 13. The story is Abraham followed God's leading and Abraham becomes very, very wealthy. The blessings of God on Abraham, they spill over into his nephew Lot. They both begin to have so many livestock that the land cannot contain them both and they have to separate from one another. Abraham, being a gracious man that he was, he asked Lot, you, you pick first. You go want to go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. Lot lifts up his eyes. He sees the well-watered plains. And he says, I want to go that way. Now, in choosing the well-watered plains of Jordan, Lot begins his move and begins to move his family closer and closer to Sodom is what we find. And Sodom, Scripture tells us, is a city filled with wicked men who were against the Lord. Now, our next encounter with Lot is in Genesis 19. By the time we get to Genesis 19, Lot has left the well-watered plains altogether and has now moved into the city of Sodom. And by all appearances, he has assimilated into the culture and the customs of Sodom. Right? Lot's assimilation was seen in three ways. In Genesis 19.1, we find Lot sitting at the gate. Now, that may seem like an incidental detail, but the gate in a city in these days, that was where business was transacted. That was where leaders and businessmen gathered together to make decisions and to do business. As far as the people of Sodom were concerned, Lot was one of them. 
He had become so assimilated into the culture they accepted him as one of their leaders and one of their people. Secondly, in, in Genesis 19 and 7, Lot refers to the wicked men coming to rape the angels who came to, to deliver Lot. He refers to them as my brethren. Right? Showing that Lot not, not only did they consider Lot to be one of them, Lot considered himself to be one of them. And then really the, the biggest way we see Lot's assimilation, the culture of the time, was as the men kept pressing on the door, wanting to rape the angels, Lot offers them something instead of the angels. Anybody remember what that was? He offers his virgin daughters to be raped to satisfy the carnal desires of the evil, wicked men at his door. At this point, Lot basically shared the same values and the same priorities and the same attitudes as the wicked people of Sodom. But God was gracious. And God is amazing. And he went there, sent angels there to deliver Lot. And so that was what he planned to do. And he was going to deliver Lot from judgment. But because Lot was so assimilated the culture of Sodom, he would not just go out into the plains. He wanted to go into one of the cities. He couldn't imagine going back to being a pilgrim. He couldn't imagine going back to living in tents. He wanted to go back and live in a city. The graciousness of God enabled him to do that if that's what he wanted to do. Even with that, he basically had to be dragged away from impending judgment. Lot's time in Sodom had so affected him that he was not in any way noticeably different than the people of Sodom. And as Lot and his family were being led out of the city, they were instructed not to ever look back. Don't look back at all. Just keep going. Look forward. Don't look back. And as they fled, God began to rain down hell and fire and brimstone upon the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as this happened... Lot's wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now different commentators have ideas about what it meant that she looked back. Some say that she slowed down and had fallen behind because she didn't really want to leave. Others say that she looked around and looked longingly at the city and the people she loved. And then others say that she was actually turned around and heading back to the city. Now all three are possible. Um, my opinion, the last is the most probable. She was longingly looking and began to move toward the city. Because in Sodom, she was the wife of a wealthy and an important person. If they were to go to the city that God said He would spare for them, the city of Zoar, they would arrive with nothing more than whatever they were carrying. And from the context of the passage, it seems like nothing more than what they were wearing. And they would not be anyone significant. They would not be anyone important. She couldn't bear the thought of leaving all of that behind. And so she turned around and she was judged by God because of it. Her love of the world and her love of the things of the world caused her to look back to the world after she had been delivered by God and she was destroyed. So when Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife, He's warning us that if we look back like Lot's wife did, we look longingly back at the world and what we think we're missing by following Jesus, we may be surprised. Right? Because Jesus could come back suddenly. And we may be looking back and, and going back. And in the midst of our going back, Jesus returns. And we've not been faithful 
to the end. Think about the many warnings about Jesus' return where he says not to, not to just think, well, my master's away and he's going to be gone a long time. Because when you do that, you go into the drunkenness and the partying and the worldly ways and then the master returns suddenly. And that, that servant is given a place with the wicked. Remember Lot's wife so we don't turn back. Because we know Jesus could return at any moment, at any time, any day. And if we turn back, we may miss the salvation of God and find ourselves experiencing the judgment of God. There is no looking back and remaining faithful to Jesus at the same time. It is one or the other. Lot's wife looked back. The children of Ephraim turned back. Turn to Psalm 78 and 9, page 448. Psalm 78 and 9 says, The children of Ephraim, being armed, carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. Now, best I can tell, there's no one particular battle that this refers to. Instead, it seems to be a, a sort of a summary of what happened to the children of Ephraim, or the people of Ephraim, when they didn't finish the job of conquering their part of the promised land. Now, of course, if you remember the Old Testament story, Joshua led the people into the land, they conquered a huge portion of it, and then they divided the land by lots. And this, this tribe went over there, and this tribe went over there, and this tribe went over there. And what they were doing, there were still people in those areas. And so the children of Judah were to go over here, and then they were to kill whoever was there and take the land. And the children of Ephraim were to go there, and they were to kill whoever was there and take their land for themselves. But what we find in many cases, particularly in the children of Ephraim, is that rather than driving out the inhabitants of the land as God had said, they, they turned back on the day of battle. And they let the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer to live among them. Which, by the way, was totally contrary to what God had said. God had said to drive them all out. Don't let them live among you. And they went and started to fight. And they went and started, but then they, they turned back. Now, we're not told why they turned back. We're just told that they did. But notice the psalmist, he includes the fact that they were armed... And they were carrying bows. And I think that's meant to tell us that it wasn't because they couldn't do it. It wasn't because they were outgunned and outmanned. They had the finest armament of the time. And yet, for some reason, they just chose not to drive the Canaanites out of the land. They turned back in the day of battle. Maybe it was too hard. Maybe the battle was going to take too long. Maybe it just seemed unnecessary to totally remove the people from the land. They could work out a compromise with them. And it would be advantageous for everybody involved. We just don't know for sure why they turned back on the dead battle. But we do know the result of their turning back. Look at verse 10. And they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. So when they turned back on the day of battle, they, they stopped following God. Now, there seems to be two reasons they stopped following God. First, is that turning back on the day of battle was itself an area of disobedience. God had said to drive them out of the land. 
And they refused to do what God had said. They, they just turned back and they stopped following God by not fully obeying God. The second reason that they stopped following God is just because disobedience, it begets disobedience. I mean, once they broke God's covenant by not driving the people out of the land and turning back on the day of battle and refusing to walk in His laws and making a treaty with the people of the land, it became much easier for them to disobey God in, in other areas. I mean, if you already have a, a treaty with the people, why not let your children marry their children? I mean, sure, God said not to do it, but, but we've got a treaty with them, and they seem like fine people all in all. And if your children are marrying their children, why not see how, how they worship their gods? I mean, they sure, they worship Baal and they have these strange customs, but, but they seem like perfectly fine people. They, they react better than some Jews I know. Let's see how they worship their gods. And if you're seeing how they worship their gods and your children are married to their children, well, you might as well add worship of their God to your religious life. I mean... Holy day for Bell was Thursday. I have a holy day Thursday and a holy day Friday evening. I'm not taken away from the worship of God. I'm worshiping both. Seems like a win-win situation. And if you've got a treaty with them and your kids are intermarried and you're seeing how they worship their gods and you're worshiping their gods, you might as well. And you can just go on and on and on. Disobedience in one area always begets disobedience in another area. That's just the way it works. Also look at verse 11. And they forgot his works. And his wonders. That he had showed them. They, they, just, they just forgot God. Once they stopped following God. The, left, the next logical step was to forget God. Now I don't think this means. They just had no idea that God who. That type of forgot God. Rather I think it carries with the idea. That they took no thought of God. They forgot God by not considering what God said about their decisions. Again, if you've read the Old Testament, you know the law was pretty detailed about, about everything. I mean, virtually every aspect of their life was governed by the law. So what do you do? You've already stopped doing what God has said, so you stop taking God's law into consideration. You, you, you just don't care. What has God's Word said about this issue? doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want to do. What is God's will regarding this issue? doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Where God's will and God's Word were meant to be the foundation of every decision they made, it was instead never consulted or never considered. And with us, it's easy for us to be like the children of Ephraim and turn back in the day of battle. We battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it is tempting at times to let up and to back up. Why? Well, perhaps it's too hard. I mean, let's let's be honest. Spiritual battles are hard to fight. They, they we fight them, and the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're not shrinking violets. The, the very first time we stand up and say, no. I'm going to live for Jesus. They don't run for the hills screaming and crying, do they? Our opposition doesn't frighten them. Instead, our opposition causes them to turn up the heat and oppose us more. 
And the reality is there are times where it just seems easier to give up than it does to keep on. But we can't. Perhaps it takes too long. Again, spiritual battles are not only tough, they're they're long. Our, Our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're playing the long game. They don't have to win today because they know there'll be another chance to attack tomorrow. But think about Think about the devil when he tempted Jesus. He he goes to Jesus in the 40 days in the wilderness and he tempts him. Jesus wins. And in Luke's gospel, Luke records that the devil left until a, what, a more opportune time. He was playing the long game. He knew that he didn't have to win that day because there were other opportunities to tempt Jesus to sin. And if he won later on, he still won. And that's what He's still doing in your life and mine. Yes, we win today, but He doesn't run away and that's it, I'm done. He knows. There'll be another opportunity tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that and on and on until we die or Jesus comes back. And sometimes it's just easier to give up than it is to fight day after day after day after day. But we can't. And perhaps it just seems unnecessary to totally remove this issue, whatever it may be, from our lives. Our world is built on compromise. And so it's very easy for us to rationalize, to minimize or to justify some sort of compromise with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in these these compromises, these explanations, they may range from everyone else is doing it, to, well, it's not that big of a deal... Well, society has changed. Well, I read an article and this guy said. I mean, it's really easy to come up with a reason why it's okay to compromise. The heart is deceitfully wicked. And in every one of our hearts, given the chance, our heart will come up with a very good sounding reason in our life. Why we don't have to fully remove this sin or this issue from our lives. We make a compromise with it because here's why it's okay. And our heart says, yes. And the devil says, yes. And the world says, yes. And our flesh says, yes. And Jesus says, no. Don't. But whatever the reason, the result is the same. Turning back in the day of battle is always sin. And that disobedience always begets more disobedience. And the more we disobey, the less we take Jesus and His Word and His will to consideration. We cannot turn back and remain faithful to Jesus at the same time. It is one or the other. And then finally, Demas went back. Lot's wife looked back. The children of Ephraim turned back. Demas went back. Of those who that we're looking at today, the one that bothers me the most is Demas. Now, Demas bothers me not because we know so much about him, for truly we don't know that much about Demas at all. There's only three mentions of Demas in all of the New Testament. We know that he was with Paul when he wrote to the Colossians. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. 
We know that when Paul wrote to Philemon, he said there, Salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, and Lucas, my fellow laborer. So he was with Paul, and he was a fellow laborer with Paul. And then Paul mentions Demas one more time, approximately five years after writing the book of Colossians and what we assume would be his last letter. It was addressed to his protege in the faith, Timothy. Toward the end of the letter, he mentions Demas again. Turn to 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. It should be page 916 if you have a pew Bible. Second Timothy four and ten. Let's start at verse nine. He writes to, to Timothy and he says, Do thy diligence to come shortly to me. Come to me quickly. Why? For Demas hath forsaken me. Now, that on its own, that would be tragic. But notice why Demas had forsaken Paul, having loved this present world, and has departed into Thessalonica. I mean, isn't that sad? He he had forsaken Paul, not because he was scared of the struggles, not because it was just too hard to fight the battles, but because he loved the world. There's just a lot of things about Demas we don't know. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how long he had been a Christian. We don't know how long he had been Paul's companion other than probably about four or five years. And after this time, of, like I said, probably four or five years of being Paul's companion, he he deserted Paul because he began to love the world. He had fallen in love with the world. Which is something Scripture explicitly forbids. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And notice this last part. The world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We're not to love the things of the world because they're temporary. We're not to love the things of the world because they distract us from the things of God. And in fact, we're not to love the things of the world because when we love them, it squeezes out of our hearts love for God. According to to Scripture, right? So this isn't my opinion. If any man love the world, love the Father is not in him. I can't love God and love the things of the world at the same time. These two loves are mutually exclusive. This is why Demas is such a a terrible warning about going back. We don't know a lot about Demas, but we know enough that we can conclude he should have known better. I mean, his traveling companion was the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine the scriptural insights he must have gleaned with years on the road listening to Paul preach and watching Paul pen Scripture? What truths did he learn? What new things did he understand because of Paul's ministry of the Word? What what kind kind of miracles 
had Demas seen. Think about that. Demas, Paul was known to like raise the dead. He was known to, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Demas had likely seen no sort of miracles, and yet he looked at what Paul was doing through Jesus, and he looked at the world, and he ran back to the world and left all of the miracles and all of the things that he experienced as Paul's fellow laborer. At one point in his life, Demas had labored. He had worked hard to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God, to lead people to Christ, to make disciples of all nations. He had worked side by side with the greatest missionary of the New Testament, the one who wrote the the majority of our New Testament, and yet, and yet, he was seduced by the things of the world And he deserted Paul and he went back into the world. And I can't help but wonder if Demas was like Lot's wife and just couldn't help to look back to see what he had been missing. I mean, what if, what if, and this is all it is, it's a what if. What if Demas was younger? Timothy was young. What if as a young man following the elder Paul, he thought, well, yeah, Paul, but your life's over. There's all kinds of really good things for a young, virile man to go and do in this world. And he looked back at all the stuff that all of his peers got to do before they they didn't come to Christ. All of the the worldly pleasures they were getting to take in. All of the stuff they had. They, They weren't sleeping on the ground. They didn't flee cities. They didn't have to be let down by baskets at night. They, they, they didn't have to do without food. Their lives were easy and good. And none of the stuff that they were going through was, was what he was going through. It's just not fair. I'm serving Jesus. I ought to have those things. I ought to get to do those things. I'm still young. There's time. We don't know. But all we do know is that he looked back. And when he looked back, he went back. And again, if we can take the word at face value, the world passes away and the lusts thereof. He that does the will of God abides forever. It seems to be an indication that there is a, a judgment on those who love the world and there is a salvation to those who love God. That's why we cannot look back, go back, and remain faithful to Jesus. It is one or the other. It is easy to start anything. New Year tells us that every year. New Year's resolutions are very common. And New Year's resolutions are very rarely followed through. It's easy to start anything. It is difficult to finish. And this is just as true in our faithfulness and our devotion to Jesus. It is easy to come to Christ. It is easy to repent of our sins and believe on Jesus. But that daily faithfulness until the end, man, that's it's hard. And Jesus was never he never lied about how difficult it would be. And he never wavered on telling us that we had to endure to the end. To be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. 
What about those that don't endure to the end? And he that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And again, the same question. What, what about those that don't endure to the end? Perseverance is not optional if we want to experience the full and the final salvation Jesus offers. Perseverance is not optional if we want to receive that more, that better and more enduring reward in heaven. We cannot look back. We cannot turn back. We cannot go back. And remain faithful to Jesus. We must do one or the other. Let's bow our heads.